Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn with me to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. This morning, I'm going to read to you a couple of uh, passages that might seem a little bit disjointed to you, but uh, you'll, see, you'll see my connection as we go through this. Romans chapter 14, starting at verse 1, these are the words of God. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now skip over to verse 13, uh, and throughout the next few weeks we will connect all of the missing verses in the dots. But verse 13 to the end of the chapter says this, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced, this is the apostle Paul, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, who are you Uh, You are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. And he's referring to the kingdom of God. Look what he says next. He says, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Don't let that be spoken of as evil. For he who is in this way, for he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. What a powerful line right there. The late Robert Mounts, uh, a theologian and contributor to the New American Commentary, writes concerning Romans 14, he writes these words. He says, Paul, uh, Paul's letter, uh, were, letters were not intended as abstract treaties on matters ethical and theological. They are ethical, they are theological, but they're not abstract. They're not for no purpose. He goes on and says, but instead they are pastoral notes addressed to real life situations in first century churches. 
Likewise, John Chrysostom, who is a third century church father, uh, on the same matter, on the same exact chapter, uh, mind you, Romans 14, says this. He says, but as I am always saying, we must examine the mind with which it is spoken, that is any text of scripture, and the subject on which it is said, and the object that he would compass when he says it. In other words, what is the objective of the writer? These two voices spanning almost 2,000 years of church history are singing the exact same song. And the song is familiar to us. The title of the song is Context. What a beautiful song to Nathan's ears. All too often, we read passages of Scripture assuming a 21st century context. And when we do this, sadly, what happens is we set ourselves off to the races for some man-made doctrine that is, at best, of no use... It's benign, it's of no use, but at worst, it's malignant. It will cause dangerous ideas to enter the church. Often, what we see is that it causes those who are weak in their faith to stumble. So we have to be careful with what we're, what we're uh, believing and what we're seeing and what we're reading. So I can't stress enough how important it is to read the scriptures within their context uh, the reason for context as a hermeneutic, which is simply a fancy word that, that means an interpretive method, uh, the reason why context is a really important interpretive method is so that any meaning or application that we glean from the Scripture can be applied according to Scripture. Whatever we pull out of Scripture needs to be applied according to Scripture. This is the idea of fitting a a square peg in a round hole or, or something like that. We need to pull out round pegs from round holes and put round pegs back in round holes, okay? That's exactly what we're supposed to do. So over the next few weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Romans 14 and 15, and we're going to seek to understand not only the issues at hand, but also, and today specifically, the words and a phrase that, uh, that are used over and over in this text. We know that words have meaning. Hopefully, we all know this. Words have meaning, and those meanings change over time. Meanings change over time. The reason why we don't catch the transforming of meaning, the reason why we don't recognize it, is because we're in time. We're walking this plan along, and sometimes things just change. It's like a frog in boiling water, right? So we, we don't notice that things change over time. So in order to understand a, a text in its context, it actually requires that we resurrect, in a manner of speaking, we resurrect certain biblical ideas. Let me give you a, a real quick example of this. In the King James Bible, we hear the phrase that God causes evil. God causes evil. Well, that's an interesting thought. Uh, it's an interesting thought because to us, evil only falls under the category of moral evil. But evil didn't always mean moral evil or only moral evil. In the time of the King James Bible, the term evil also means what the Greek word that it was translated from meant, and that is calamity. And the truth is, God does bring about calamity. He brings about justice on those who are disobedience disobedient. So God does bring that about. But if you don't understand the word properly, you're going, to, uh, you're going to lead people in a weird path that God creates evil, or uh, you know, you're going to cause somebody to stumble in their faith when they're confused about God's character. Although uh, understanding these words may take a couple of weeks, when we get through chapters 14 and 15, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that it all ties in with, the, with what the Apostle Paul has already taught. 
And the reason why we're going to see it tie in is because we've been studying it in context. So he's never going to just uh, take a squirrel uh, moment and just shoot off down another path. He's always keeping track with what he's talking about. So we're going to see that all of this ties into hypocrisy, mutual submission, uh, love void of hypocrisy, and even unity, which is a very important thing. So uh, I also come at this message, this is just part of the intro or the disclaimer here, I also come at this message with a very sensitive pastoral heart because my goal in this message is to set people free from a particular wrong view, a man-made idea that we have picked up along the way, specifically a man-made idea concerning faith. Now you've heard me talk about faith a lot, uh, but we're going we're gonna to keep hammering on that term and the term love uh, until, until we go to be with the Lord. Why? Because those words are not worth giving up. We cannot surrender those words to the culture. Love means something, and so, in fact, does faith. So, uh, is, more specifically in this, what I'm looking at is what does Scripture mean when it says, or the writers say, that people are weak, in faith, have little faith, or have small faith. So this is my attempt at a course correction. Please bear with me uh, and consider the things that I have to say. You, you may find that you don't like what I have to say at the end of this, but I, I would challenge you to, um, to look at what the scripture is, is saying. So in order to do this, the first thing that I have to do is define faith. So that's pretty simple. If you are a note taker, please, I encourage you to write these things down, but we're going to define faith. The second question that we're going to ask, or the second point, is a question, how is faith gauged biblically? And I have a very particular view of this question, and that is, uh, is faith really seen as a quantity in Scripture? Is faith really seen as a quantity, uh, a scalable thing within us in Scripture? And then the third thing that I want you to see are the pitfalls of a distorted view of faith and how it is gauged. Um, finally, I'll tie all this in with Romans 14. So first, without further ado, defining faith. Uh, our word faith comes from the Latin term fide. Say that with me. Fide, okay? Uh, think the English word fidelity. That would be the, the exact uh, transfer, fidelity. Fidelity means faithfulness or trustworthiness, okay? This is why the proper understanding of the term faith, this is why a right understanding of that term means trust. Say this with me. Faith means trust, and that is all. Oh, I love it. So beautiful. Faith means trust. Now, the Greek word is a funny-sounding word, only because our culture uh, has other words that are inappropriate. But the Greek word is the word pistis. It's almost like piston, okay? It's just an interesting word. But that word, too, means trust in its original uh, form. So we have faith means trust, and that is all. And then Scripture goes on to show us how, in Hebrews 11.1, 1, how uh, faith is expanded into a more practical definition. Now, this is where I've spent a whole lot of time. So a lot of what we're going to talk about, at least at the first part, it will be a recap for some of you, okay? So Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. As I've taught in the past, 
It does not mean that our faith and trust uh, is just uh, out there in Never Never Land or, or blind in any capacity. It actually means that our faith and trust is predicated on both substance and evidence. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Even if that substance or even if that evidence happens to be a promise given. Okay, this is precisely why I've distinguished in the past between biblical faith and the notion of blind faith. Although faith is the evidence of things not seen, it is nonetheless evidence. So there is something to it, right? For example, there's a popular phrase in the church today. The phrase goes something like this, jump and the net will appear. That is foolishness and not faith. It starts with an F, so I get the confusion, but it is not faith. You do not jump and wait for the net to appear. You jump only if God told you there was a net, and where do we find out what God says? His word. So stop jumping. And listen, you don't have to agree with me. If you don't like what I have to say, test it out. Scripture says test everything. But here, caution, caution, please don't scale really high heights to test this point, okay? Find somebody who has a picnic table, okay? Find somebody who has a picnic table, jump off of it, and claim that the net will appear. And when you pick yourself up off the ground, we'll continue our conversation, okay? Because no net will appear. It's an amazing thing. Remember, the very temptation of the devil to Jesus in the wilderness was that nonsense. Jump, your father will protect you. And what did Jesus say? He said, no, 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 uh-uh, uh-uh. Don't test the Lord your God. <laughs> I mean, what kind of nonsense are we believing inside of this? So find a picnic table and I'll talk to you a little bit later, right? No, jump in the net will appear. But if Hebrews 11.1 1 is to be fully understood, listen clearly here. If Hebrews 11.1 1 is to be fully understood, it is also, and maybe more particularly, referring to a life lived in obedience in view of mercy and faith. Okay? Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is the evidence. And I would argue it's the, the, life, or the life of evidence uh, that you live. Lives of faith are evidence and substantiated by what, church? Works. Actions. No, works do not save you. But don't think for a second you are saved by grace through faith and you just get to sit on your couch and wait for Jesus to return. That's not what he said. He commanded everybody, go into the world and preach the gospel. He's commanded us to, in view of mercy, present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And the commands go on and on. Think about it this way. If we are saved by grace through faith, which means trust, and we are, we're saved by grace through faith, then trust or faith is substantiated by the very thing we hope for, salvation or a redempted body or redeemed body. We see a life of substance that actually believes God's promises are true. That is, whatever Jesus says, you do. Our lives will exhibit evidence if what we believe is actually true. And the evidence and the substance is called works or obedience. You've got to see it. No doubt this is why Hebrews 11 goes on to say of all of the actions, to highlight all of the actions of the great cloud of witnesses. 
Notice Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And everything that follows says, and Abraham by faith did this, and Rahab by faith did that. There's why that's all connected. It's also most assuredly why James 2.24 tells us that we're not justified by faith alone, but by works. James is not telling us that we're earning anything. Instead, he is saying that if you have genuine faith, then it will have substance and evidence by your obedience. Otherwise, it's nothing. Please hear me, church. There is no such thing as a nominal Christian. It's a non-Christian. You obey, or that's not, you're not who you claim to be. This is really, really important. Does that mean we don't screw up as Christians? I hope not. Of course we screw up, and we were given instruction on what to do about it. When we sin, repent. (laughs) I love it. Repent. And he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. What a powerful thing. So, faith is defined as the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Faith is trust and that is all. Number two, how is faith gauged biblically? Besides what we just learned, which is what I would argue is the only uh, gauge of faith which is obedience. Besides obedience, so more importantly, is faith gauged by some sort of unseen quantity? As we heard at the outset, Romans 14, 1, Paul says, now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgments on his opinions. I love the grace there. And what we might not catch with a quick reading of Romans is that Paul contrasts weak faith with strong faith in Romans 15.1. Look at what he says there. Romans 15.1 says, Now we who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those. But underline this in your Bible, highlight it, and remember it. Without strength. I'll come back to it in just a second. And not just please ourselves. That's what we're supposed to do if we have, if we have faith or we are strong in faith, as we'll find out. But also note in 1423, you just need to keep your thumb at this place because I'm going to come back to it. Whatever is not done from faith is what, church? Okay, gulp. Whatever is not done from faith is sin. So again, the question is, is faith, is trust a measurement? There are several passages in God's word that speak of little faith or weak faith or even littleness of faith or small faith. Jesus himself uses the terms, so don't shy away from the terms just because, uh, because you don't like what they say. Uh, he, Jesus actually uses these terms uh, against Peter. He says, you of little faith. He uses them against the disciples at large, and he uses them against the entire generation at one point. (laughs) What a fantastic way to do it. Uh, But in each of these passages, the question we have to ask is, is Jesus referring to a quantity of faith, or is he showing people, listen to me, is he showing people that in that area, they lack faith or trust in him completely? What is he asking? What is he getting at? Dr. John Lennox, he's a professor and theologian. He's also a mathematician, so he's smarter than I am. Uh, Wrote his book, Determined to Believe, which is just a a book on uh, God's sovereignty and man's freedom. I'd recommend the book. It's phenomenal. But he says this about faith in his book. He says, the crucial thing about faith is its location, not its quantity. In whom do we place our faith, not how much faith do we have? 
And although I agree with Dr. Lennox, and although I will uh, use the Bible to make that case, the question that still has to be asked is what does the Bible say? Not what does John Lennox say? I love the guy. I think he's brilliant. But it doesn't matter in the end what he says. It matters what God has said. So is faith gauged by a measurement, some sort of scale that we're measuring on? The answer is no. The answer is no. Let me prove it to you. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 23, a man comes to Jesus. He's falling on his knees. He's praying or he's asking Jesus to heal his son. The father describes his son's sickness. He describes what's going on. The kid is referred to in the scripture as being a lunatic. Um, He he is actually demon-possessed, and there is some strange connection with mental uh, issues, mental disorders, and this. But please don't miss what I'm saying. Not all mental disorders are demon possession, for goodness sakes. I'm simply saying that what was seen in this young boy uh, is often seen in the culture today. And so he is He's having these seizures. He's throwing himself into the fire. He's throwing himself into the water. And so he describes these, uh, these sickness, this sickness to Jesus. And then he tells Jesus that he brought his son to the disciples. He said, I brought him to your boys. And they couldn't cure him. That was the term there. They could not cure him. That's an interesting phrase that he uses there. But Jesus, in verse 17, reprimands his guys. Okay? So the father comes, says, this is my boy, he's sick. I took him to your disciples. They couldn't do anything. So Jesus turns to his disciples and reprimands him. And listen to what he says. This is one of the most harsh reprimands you'll ever hear in Scripture. He says, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? I'm trying to work that into a Sunday message. I, I, no, I can do it when it's Jesus' words, but I'm trying to work it in for me, and I just don't think I have the heart yet for it. But so Jesus reprimands them. He just hits them pretty hard. And then Jesus asks for the boy, and what does Jesus do? He heals him. He heals him. In spite of what is criticized, next. This is fascinating to me. He doesn't really care about what, comes, uh, what, what is uh, in them, whether their faith is strong or not. He cares about proving who he is. But look at this. The disciples then come to Jesus in private and they ask him a question. Why couldn't we do it? You know, what, what's broken inside of us? What is the problem? What does Jesus say? This is where we get these ideas of a measurement of faith. Jesus actually says these words. They're real. They're there. You can see them. Be, because of the littleness of your faith because of the littleness of your faith and you're going wow yep that's what I've been taught all my life the reason why something's not happened is because of littleness in my faith but what does Jesus say right after that for truly I say to you if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed you can say to a mountain move from here to there and it will be moved and then look what he says he says and nothing will be impossible for you Now, let me me ask you a simple question. If the faith the size of mustard seed will enable me to not face anything that overcomes me, that makes sure nothing is impossible, why would I need more than a mustard seed? I don't, because Jesus never said so. It's just a goofy idea that we have read, again, like I started at the beginning, out of context for far too long. Now, just looking at the surface of this, it does seem like he says, well, littleness of faith, that means a measure. But 17 tells us the answer to this. Jesus' reprimand to his disciples was what? 
that they were an unbelieving generation, not a little believing generation. He says you are an unbelieving generation. He didn't say they just didn't have enough belief. It also doesn't make sense with Jesus' word of the faith of a mustard seed. But I'm going to come back to that and hit home on that in just a second. But we've got more to go through because there's some challenging ones ahead. Next is the most famous probably passage of Jesus' criticism of little faith. He calls out Peter walking on the water, right? Matthew 14. 22 through 33, Jesus' disciples set out on their boat, and I love this terminology in the scripture. It says that they, were, they came up against a contrary wind. Isn't that, isn't that pleasant? That's an understatement of the year, right? Under, that's a contrary wind. Well, it stirred up the waters and was battering the ship. So Jesus comes out to them. He's walking on the water, and he startles them. Why does he startle them? Because they thought he was a ghost. Did you guys notice today in one of the songs, Adam used the word Holy Ghost? That's the King James, right? But as Barney has rightly pointed out in times past, you cannot say Holy Ghost. You have to say Holy Ghost. That, that is the right way. I'm not mocking him, trust me. But that is the way I was raised. You have to say Holy Ghost. Holy Ghost. There's a cadence to it, okay? So get, get that down, right? So, so he comes out onto the ship. They're scared. They think he's a ghost. And Jesus calms them. Now, take note of this really quick. He calms them by doing two things. He identifies themselves and he speaks to them to have courage. Courage. Please hear what I'm about to say. The way that you calm yourself from the fears and anxieties of life is, number one, look to the face of the Father. Please please identify with him. Who can overcome you if Jesus is for you? No one can overcome you. So right off the bat, Jesus goes, it's me. Calm down. And then he says, have courage. Have courage. God is speaking that to us. Take courage. Do not fear. Don't do those things. You don't look like the rest of the world. Have courage, okay? So I love that observation there, just just for your uh, extra study, right? So Peter says to Jesus, listen to these words, I love it. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. I don't know about you, but I have no idea why he thought that up in the moment. Just please track with me. He's never seen a movie in his life. Peter's like, you know what I'm thinking would be a good idea? Walking on water. What? What? The only way he has that file folder is because Jesus is doing it. Okay? And so he goes, hey, let's do it. That's great. Jesus doesn't disappoint. Come on, baby. Let's do it. That's the NIV, Nathan International Version. But still, he calls him out, right? And the scripture says that he gets out of the boat, he walks on the water. These are the exact words from Matthew. Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Highlight two things. He cried out to the Lord and he called on him to save him. Verse 31 tells us immediately that Jesus stretches out his hands and he took hold of Peter. And here's where he says it. He says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? The question that we have to ask here, it's a fun question. It's not often asked, is what did did Peter doubt? Notice he doesn't doubt who can save him. Lord, Lord, save me. 
He doesn't doubt who Jesus is, and he doesn't doubt who can save him. What he doubted was that Jesus, or anything else for that matter, could continue to enable him to walk on water. Peter's little faith was not somehow that his faith meter had the, uh, had the fuel light come on. He didn't reach this low level and all of a sudden need to go to the gas station. That's not what's happening. If this is our problem, then the question we have to ask is what level of faith does one need to stay afloat? If nothing is impossible with the faith of a mustard seed, how much more do I need to walk on water? You see, we can't answer that question because the Bible doesn't answer it. Because the Bible doesn't know what we're talking about. We're asking 21st century questions in a 1st century writing. Peter believed that he could walk with his Lord. But Peter saw the winds and the waves and he doubted that he could walk with his Lord. Peter's faith was on one moment, it was off the next. Yet again, we're not talking about quantity, we're talking about trust. Does he trust or does he not? The list goes on and on, church, in the scripture. And in every case, we see the exact same thing in its context. In Matthew 6.30, Jesus instructs us not to worry about the things that we need in this life. And then he calls out those who have little faith as those who don't trust him for tomorrow. In Matthew 16.8, Jesus calls out his disciples for being men of little faith because they discussed among themselves that they had no bread. When Jesus was talking about, again, something completely different. He was talking about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But he condescends to their stupidity. I love this because he does this to me all the time, right? He condescends to their stupidity and he reassures them. If you, if you study Matthew 16, 8, he actually looks at them and says, What part of our history together makes you think I won't feed you? He says, I fed the 4,000, I fed the 5,000, how much food was left over? And you're complaining about bread? What? What's going on with you guys? Do you see the connection here? He is not talking about their little faith as we understand the phrase. He is talking about their lack of trust in him. This idea throughout scripture is clearly understood, again, by the context. Little faith, weak faith, small faith has nothing to do with it landing on a scale. Instead, it is an idiomatic phrase that is translated, you don't trust God at all. You don't trust God at all. So I told you we'd get back to Romans 14.23 and 15.1. Look at these two passages. 14.23 says this, Whatever is not done from faith is sin. You notice he doesn't say whatever is not done from a proper amount of faith is sin. It is, if it is faith, it is good. If it is not faith, it is sin. Not if it is just a little bit bigger than a mustard seed. Or at least that. At least that means you have faith or you don't have faith. But then again, look at Romans 15.1. It says, Now we who are strong ought to bear, with, bear the weaknesses of those, underline it, without strength, not of little strength. The words are used, but we have to know what they mean. And their meaning is derived from a context. So, Paul doesn't talk anything about levels because that has nothing to do with Scripture. 
So we've defined faith. Faith is trust, and that is all. Remember that motto. It'll be happening around here all the time, right? We've learned that faith is gauged by our actions. Either we trust him or we don't trust him. Faith is not gauged by a meter because the Bible doesn't speak to how to change that if it were, right? The pitfalls now, number three, the pitfalls of this distorted view of how faith is gauged, the problem with the faithometer idea. And this is where... Trust me, church, this this ruffles our feathers a bit. When we believe that faith is some spiritual force that we need to work up, think Star Wars, right? Guys, watch this. I'm going to move my water bottle just using the force, but I'm going to call it faith and steal from this pagan idea. It still doesn't work because it doesn't matter, right? It's not a spiritual substance that registers on your faith meter. We are using, listen to me, we are using foreign ideas to scripture. We are using what is documented to be pagan, heretical, and Gnostic. It is nonsense. And yet it's found its resurgence in the church today. This misrepresentation of faith has led to so many issues in different streams of the church. On one hand, there are people that say, well, the reason you're not healed is because you didn't have enough faith. What were they implying? Not that you didn't trust Jesus at all that you didn't have enough, that there's a a measure of it, and somehow you got to hide away in your closet somewhere and try to work this nonsense up. It's not in the Scripture. It's just simply not in the Scripture. On the other hand, some have concluded that faith, it's the same problem, some have concluded that faith, therefore, is a work. It's a spiritual force from within, and that work would then somehow merit salvation. And thus, though people in this stream would conclude that God must give faith, we've talked about that, God must give faith because it's some spiritual source, or that regeneration has to precede faith so that you can put it in God because it's a supernatural thing. Both of these ideas are are from the same view of faith and they're distorted. They are wrong. Faith is trust and that is all. So let's wrap this up. I got the kids coming in because I was tired of torturing Kids Point when I went too long. So as we've seen, Jesus does not uh, does use the words little faith, but it is not a quantity, right? And if it is a quantity, he's inconsistent with himself. I told you I'd come back to the mustard seed. Listen to this. Jesus also says that if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Just think about that for a second and it playing out. Jesus says... Okay, here's the ideas. Here's what you do. Faith of a mustard seed. A mustard seed, according to Matthew 13, 31 and 32, is the smallest of seeds. So let's link it all together. Ye of little faith, all you need is the littlest of faith. What? Ye of little faith, all you need is the littlest of faith. Thanks, Dave. It's a wonderful organ. You're trying to pull on me, but it didn't work. In Luke 17, verses 5 and 6, right? In Luke 17, verses 5 and 6, the disciples are given a warning as well as an instruction. The warning is against those who would cause a little one to stumble in their faith. That is to lack trust in Jesus. They're also commanded to forgive their brothers as many times as he sins or asks for forgiveness. How many of raised a show of hands think that would be pretty hard? Forgive them as many times as they ask for forgiveness. Okay, let me ask a better question. How many of you are struggling with forgiving someone right now? 
you are lying to me, and I, but I'll forgive you, okay? So struggling with forgiveness, and he says, if they do it seven times in a day and ask for forgiveness, you have to forgive them, okay? Wow, that's a big deal. The response to the warning and the instruction by the disciples makes perfect sense to me. They respond and said what? Increase our faith. Well, there's your measure, Nathan. Not a chance. Since we know it's not a scale, look at what Jesus responds with. According to the scripture, he doesn't answer their question. He gives them a truth statement. They say, increase our faith, Lord. We're struggling to forgive. Increase our faith. We don't want to cause people to stumble. Increase our faith. Jesus looks at them, no correction, says, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, none of this would be a problem. If you have the faith of a mustard seed, you could move a mountain. In other words, quantity has nothing to do with this. Nothing at all. They can either trust God's word alone and thus never cause somebody to stumble or or they can refuse to trust him and make their own man-made doctrines. And then they're under threat of millstones. Smile. Look it up. It'll be awesome for you. Okay? They can either trust that God is the judge, that he deals with those who sin against us, that he is the judge, that he is the arbiter, that he is the final say. You can either trust God in that and forgive your brothers, or you can refuse to trust and walk in unforgiveness and forfeit the kingdom of God. Smile. This doesn't make any sense, guys. The point is, All you would need is the faith of a mustard seed. That's what makes all things possible. In in other words, all you have to do is trust me. It's not how much you trust me. Trust me. Think, Think about this for a second. We exhibit faith all day, every day. We show faith. It is not a spiritual thing. How how do I mean? Every day my wife says, I love you. And guess what I do? I trust that that's true. Guess how her faith, her her faith that she says, I love you, how her proclamation becomes evident and sure to me. Actions. She doesn't just mouth the words, but she backs it up. I say, I love you, but if I said I love you over and over and over again, and I never did anything to show that that was true, as a matter of fact, let's say I did the opposite. Do you think she should really believe that I love her? No. Should she have faith in my words? No, because my words don't mean anything. God's words never return void. The challenge is, do we trust him or do we not trust him? This is where an accurate view of faith matters deeply. Faith, according to the scripture, is binary, church. It is a one, it is a zero. It is on or it is off. We either trust God in an area or we don't. So you might say, well, where's the hope in this? Well, if you don't trust God in an area, confess your sin. Whatever is not done out of faith is sin. Confess your sin and he's faithful and just to forgive you. But then you call on him and say, God, I need you to teach me. So again, John Lennox's words, it is in whom do we place our faith, not how much faith do we have. Another problem with this view of faith as a quantity is that it leads Christians on a wild goose chase. God's word doesn't give us a plan for raising the level of our faith on our faithometer because it's not a concept in the Bible. This too leads to man-made philosophies, doctrines, making people slaves to something that doesn't even exist. All this 
is the spiritual equivalent of chasing Bigfoot. It's not real. You're never going to find what you're looking for. Lastly, proponents of this view should heed Jesus' warning in Luke 17, 5 and 6. The warning is that if you cause one of these immature Christians to stumble, woe to you. Woe to you. Woe to you. If tragedy strikes in a person's life, this is, this is very important. If tragedy strikes in a person's life, a fellow Christian, and you tell them that they need to have faith in an area, you're well within biblical parameters. Have faith. That's a right understanding. Have it or don't have it, but have it, right? I would go so far as to say it's okay to even use Jesus' words, ye of little faith, in correcting a Christian, a fellow Christian. If what you mean by this is that in that particular area, that Christian is not trusting Jesus at all. And we all have those areas. This is why Romans 14 talks about us not judging or holding contempt on others. Because we all have those moments inside of our life. But listen, if what we're doing is presenting the non-scriptural idea that God will or will not move in your situation based on the level of your faith displayed on your faith meter you are wrong and you need to stop. This is not biblical. So how does this tie in with Romans chapter 14? You'll have to wait till next week. <laughs> Wasn't that awesome? Wasn't that awesome? A cliff, who, what kind of preacher can create a cliffhanger? Not me very well, but I'll, I'll try it. All, all joking aside, what we're going to see next week is actually how all of this comes together for what God says is to live in harmony and peace with one another. Because as I said before, we all have these areas. I, I have areas where I'm going, God, can I trust you here? But listen, all I'm telling you right now is that I'm honest enough to admit I don't trust him here. I don't need to act like I'm better than I am. I don't need to tell you I've got a little faith that he can do it. But I just need more. No, I, I just don't. There are areas in all of our life like this. And when we see it according to Scripture, and when we humble ourselves according to Scripture, what we come to is this really beautiful realization that even when we sin, even when we're foolish, God says, I'm faithful. I'm just to forgive you of all unrighteousness. Just come to me. Just come to me. Amen? Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.